Justice Breyer, Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor dissenting from the Supreme Court's opinion in Dobbs. For half a century, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood of Southeastern PA versus Casey have protected the liberty and equality of women. Roe held and Casey reaffirmed that the Constitution safeguards a woman's right to decide for herself whether to bear a child. Roe held and Casey reaffirmed that in the first stages of pregnancy, the government could not make that choice for women. The government could not control a woman's body or the course of a woman's life. It could not determine that what the woman's future would be. See Casey. See Gonzalez versus Carhartt. Ginsburg dissenting. Respecting a woman as an autonomous being and granting her full equality meant giving her substantial choice over this most personal and most consequential of all life decisions. Rowan Casey well understood the difficulty and divisiveness of the abortion issue. The court knew that Americans hold profoundly different views about the morality of terminating a pregnancy, even in its earliest stage. And the court recognized that the state has legitimate interests from the outset of the pregnancy in protecting the life of the fetus that may become a child. So, the court struck a balance, as it often does when values and goals compete. It held that the state could not prohibit abortions after fetal viability, so long as the ban contained exceptions to safeguard a woman's life or health. It held that even before viability, the state could regulate the abortion procedure in multiple and meaningful ways, but until the viability line was crossed, the court held the state could not impose a substantial obstacle on the woman's right to elect the procedure, as she, not the government, thought proper. In light of all the circumstances and complexities of her own life. Today, the court discards that balance. It says from the very moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak of. A state can force her to bring a pregnancy to term, even at the steepest of personal and familial costs. An abortion restriction, the majority holds, is permissible whenever, rash, whenever rational, the lowest level of scrutiny known to the law. And because the court has often stated protecting fetal life is rational, states will feel free to enact all manner of restrictions. The Mississippi law at issue here bars abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. Under the majority's ruling, though, another state's law could do so after 10 weeks, or five, or three, or one, or again, from the moment of fertilization. States have already passed such laws in anticipation of today's ruling. More will follow. Some states have enacted laws extending to all forms of abortion pr procedure, including taking medication in one's own home. They have passed laws without any excep exceptions for when the woman is the victim of rape or incest. Under those laws, a woman will have to bear her rapist child or a young girl her father's, no matter if doing so will destroy her life. So too, after today's ruling, some states may compel women to carry to term a fetus with severe physical abnormalities. For example, one afflicted with Tay-Chasse disease, sure to die within a few years of birth. States may even argue that a prohibition on abortion need make no provision for protecting a woman from risk of death or physical harm. Across a vast array of circumstances, a state will be able to impose its moral choice on a woman and coerce her to give birth to a child. 
Enforcement of all these draconian restrictions will also be left largely to states' devices. A state can, of course, impose criminal penalties on abortion providers, including lengthy prison sentences. But some states will not stop there. Perhaps, in the wake of today's decision, a state law will criminalize the woman's conduct too, incarcerating or fining her for daring to seek or obtain an abortion. And as Texas has recently shown, a state can turn neighbor against neighbor, enlisting fellow citizens in the effort to root out anyone who tries to get an abortion or assist another in doing so. The majority tries to hide the geographically expansive effects of its holding. Today's decision, the majority says, permits each state to address abortion as it pleases. That is cold comfort, of course, for the poor woman who cannot get the money to fly to a distant state for a procedure. Above all others, women lacking financial resources will suffer from today's decision. In any event, interstate restrictions will also soon be in the offering. After this decision, some states may block women from traveling out of state to obtain abortions, or even from receiving abortions, medications from out of state. Some may criminalize efforts, including the provision of information or funding, to help women gain access to other states' abortion services. Most threatening of all, no language in today's decision stops the federal government from prohibiting abortions nationwide, once again from the moment of conception and without exceptions for race, rape, or incest. If that happens, the views of an individual state's citizens will not matter. The challenge for women will be to finance a trip, not to New York or California, but to to Toronto. Whatever the exact scope of the coming laws, one result of today's decision is certain. The curtailment of women's rights and their status as free and equal citizens. Yesterday, the Constitution guaranteed that a woman confronted with an unplanned pregnancy could, within reasonable limits, make her own decision about whether to bear a child, with all the life-transforming consequences that act involves. And in thus safeguarding each woman's reproductive freedom, the Constitution also protected the ability of a woman to participate equally in this nation's economic and social life. But no longer. As of today, this court holds a state can always force a woman to give birth, prohibiting even the earliest abortions. A state can thus transform what freely what, when freely undertaken, is a wonder into what, when forced, may be a nightmare. Some women, especially women of means, will find ways around the state's assertion of power. Others, those without money or child care or the ability to take time off from work, will not be so fortunate. Maybe they will try an unsafe method of abortion and come to physical harm or even die. Maybe they will undergo pregnancy and have a child, but at significant personal or familial cost. At the least, they will incur the cost of losing control of their lives. The Constitution will today, the majority holds, provide no shield despite its guarantees of liberty and equality for all. And no one should be confident that this majority is done with its work. The right Roe and Casey recognized does not stand alone. To the contrary, the court has linked it for decades to other settled freedoms involving bodily integrity, familial relationships, and procreation. Most obviously, the right to terminate a pregnancy arose straight out of the right to purchase and use contraception. See Griswold v. Connecticut, Einstadt v. Baird. In turn, 
Those rights led, more recently, to rights of a same-sex intimacy in marriage. See Lawrence v. Texas and Obergefell v. Hodges. They are all part of the same constitutional fabric, protecting autonomous decision-making over the most personal of life decisions. The majority, or to be the more accurate, most of it, is eager to tell us today that nothing it does casts doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. Um, see uh, the Thomas concurrence at three, advocating the overruling of Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. But how could that be? The lone rationale for what the majority does today is that the right to elect an abortion is not deeply rooted in history. Not until Roe, the majority argues, did people, people think abortion fell within the Constitution's guarantee of liberty. The same could be said, though, of most of the rights the majority claims it is not tampering with. The majority could write just as long an opinion showing, for example, that until the mid-20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain contraceptives. So, one of two things must be true. Either the majority does not really believe in its own reasoning, or if it does, all rights that have no history stretching back to the mid-19th century are insecure. Either the mass of the majority's opinion is hypocrisy, or additional constitutional rights are under threat. It is one or the other. One piece of evidence on that score seems especially salient. The majority's cavalier approach to overturning this court's precedence, stare decisis, is the Latin phrase for a foundation of stone of the rule of law that things decided should stay decided unless there is very good reason for change. It is a doctrine of judicial modesty and humility. Those qualities are not evident in today's opinion. The majority has no good reason for the upheaval in law and society it sets off. Roe and Casey have been the law of the land for decades, shaking, shaping women's expectations of their choices when an unplanned pregnancy occurs. relied on the availability of abortion, both in structuring their relationships and planning their lives. The legal framework Roe and Casey developed to balance the competing interests in this sphere has proved workable in courts across the country. No recent developments in either law or fact have eroded or cast doubt on those precedents. Nothing, in short, has changed. Indeed, the court in Casey already found all of that to be true. Casey is a precedent about precedent. It reviewed the same arguments made here in support of overruling Roe. It found that doing so was not warranted. The court reverses courts today for one reason and one reason only. Because the composition of this court has changed. Stare decisis, this court has often said, contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process by ensuring that decisions are founded in the law rather than the proclivities of individuals. That's Payne versus Tennessee, Vasquez versus Hillary. Today, the proclivities of individuals rule. The court departs from its obligation to faithfully and impartially apply the law. We dissent. We start with Roe and Casey. And with their deep connection to a broad swath of this court's precedence. To hear the majority tell the tale, Roe and Casey are aberrations. They came from nowhere, went nowhere, and are so easy to excise from this nation's constitutional law. That is not true. After describing decis the decisions themselves, we explain how they are rooted in and 
themselves led to other rights, giving individuals control over their bodies and their most personal and intimate associations. The majority does not wish to talk about these matters for obvious reasons. To do so would both ground Roe and Casey in this court's precedence and reveal the broad implications of today's decisions. But the fact will not so handily disappear. Roe and Casey were from the beginning, and are even more now, embedded in core constitutional concepts of individual freedom, and of the equal rights of citizens to decide on the shape of their lives. Those legal concepts, one might even say, have gone far toward defining what it means to be an American. For in this nation, we do not believe that a government controlling all private choices is compatible with a free people. So we do not, as the majority insists today, place everything within the reach of majorities and government officials. West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett. We believe in a constitution that puts some issues off limits to majority rule. Even in the face of public opposition, we uphold the right of individuals, yes, including women, to make their own choices and chart their own futures. Or at least, we did once. Some half-century ago, Roe struck down a state law making it a crime to perform an abortion unless its purpose was to save a woman's life. The Roe court knew it was treading on difficult and disputed ground. It understood that different people's experiences, values, and religious training and beliefs led to opposing views about abortion. But by a 7-2 vote, the court held in that in the earlier stages of pregnancy, that contested and contestable choice must belong to a woman, in consultation with her family doctor. The court explained that a long line of precedents founded on the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty protected individual decision-making related to marriage, procreation, contraception, family relationships, and child-rearing and education. For the same reasons, the court held the Constitution must protect a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. The court recognized the myriad of ways bearing a child can alter the life and future of a woman and other members of her family. A state could not, by adopting one's theory of life, override all rights of pregnant women. At the same time, though, the court recognized valid interests of the state in regulating the abortion decision. The court noted in particular important interests in protecting potential life, maintaining medical standards, and safeguarding the health of the woman. No absolutist account of the woman's right could wipe away those significant state claims. The court therefore struck a balance, turning on the stage of the pregnancy at which the abortion would occur. The court explained that early on a woman's choice must prevail, but that at some point the state interests become dominant. It then set some guideposts. In the first trimester of pregnancy, the state could not interfere at all with the decision to terminate pregnancy. At any time after that point, the state could regulate to protect the pregnant woman's health, such as by insisting that abortion providers and facilities meet safety requirements. And after the fetus's viability, the point when the fetus has the capability of meaningful life outside the mother's womb, the state could ban abortions, except when necessary to preserve the woman's life or health. In the 20 years between Roe and Casey, the court expressly reaffirmed Roe on two occasions and applied it on many more, recognizing that arguments against Roe 
continue to be made. We respected that the doctrine of stare decisis demands respect in a society governed by the rule of law. It's Akron versus Akron Center for Reproductive Health. And we avowed that the vitality of constitutional principles cannot be allowed to yield to to yield simply because of disagreement with them. It's Thornborough versus American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. So the court, over and over, enforced the constitutional provisions Roe had declared. See, for example, Ohio versus Akron Center for Reproductive Health, Hodgson versus Minnesota, Sempolis versus Virginia, Planned Parenthood Association of Kansas City, Missouri, Incorporated versus Ashcroft, H.L. versus Matheson, Pilati versus Baird, Planned Parenthood of Central Missouri versus Danforth. Then, in Casey, the court considered the matter anew and up, again upheld Rose core precepts. Casey is in significant measure a precedent about the doctrine of precedent until today, one of the court's most important but we leave for later that aspect of the court's decision. The key thing now is the substantive effect aspect of the court's considered conclusion that the essential holding of Roe versus Wade should be retained and once again reaffirmed. Central to that conclusion was a full-throated restatement of a woman's right to choose. Like Roe, Casey grounded that right in 14th Amendment's guarantee of liberty, That guarantee encompasses realms of conduct, not specifically referenced in the Constitution. Marriage is mentioned nowhere in that document, yet the court was no doubt correct to protect the freedom to marry against state interference. And the guarantee of liberty encompasses conduct today that was not protected at the time of the 14th Amendment. It is settled now, the court said, though it was not always so that the Constitution places limits on a state's right to interfere with a person's most basic decisions about family and parenthood, as well as bodily integrity. Similarly described, that was ID at um, similarly describing the constitutional protection given to personal decisions relating to marriage, procreation, contraception, and family relationships. Especially important in this web of precedents, protecting an individual's most personal choices were those guaranteeing the right to contraception. In those cases, the court had recognized the right of the individual to make the vastly consequential decision whether to bear a child. So too, Casey reasoned, the Liberty Clause protects the decision of a woman confronting an unplanned pregnancy. Her decision about abortion was central, in the same way to her capacity to chart life's course. In reaffirming the right Roe recognized, the court took full account of the diversity of views on abortion and the importance of various competing state interests. Some Americans, the court stated, deem abortion nothing short of an act of violence against innocent human life. And each state has an interest in the protection of potential life, as Roe itself has recognized. On the one hand, that interest was not conclusive. The state could not resolve the moral and spiritual questions raised by abortion in such a definitive way that a woman lacks all choice in the matter. It could not force her to bear the pain and physical constraints of carrying a child to full term, when she would have chosen an early abortion. But on the other hand, the state had, as Roe had held, 
an exceptionally significant interest in disallowing abortions in the latter phase of a pregnancy, and it had an ever-present interest in ensuring that the woman's choice is informed and in presenting the case for choosing childbirth over abortion. So, Casey again struck a balance, differing from Rose, in only incremental ways. It retained Rose's central holding that the state could bar abortion only after viability. The viability line, Casey thought, was more workable than any other in marking the place where a woman's liberty interest gave way to a state's efforts to preserve potential life. At that point, a second life was capable of independent existence. If the woman even by then had not acted, she lacked adequate grounds to object to the state's intervention on the developing child's behalf. At the same time, Casey worked Casey At the same time, Casey decided, based on two decades of experience, that the Roe framework did not give states sufficient ability to regulate abortion prior to viability. In that period, Casey now made clear the state could not only regulate, sorry, the state could regulate not only to protect the woman's health, but also to promote prenatal life. In particular, the state could ensure informed choice and could try to promote childbirth, but the state could not place an undue burden or a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. Prior to viability, the woman consistent with the woman consistent with the constitutional meaning of liberty must retain the ultimate control over her destiny and her body. We make one initial point about this analysis in light of the majority's insistence that Roe and Casey, and we, in defending them, are dismissive of a state's interest in protecting prenatal life. Nothing could get those decisions more wrong. As just described, Roe and Casey invoked powerful state interests in that protection, operative at every stage of the pregnancy and overriding the woman's liberty after viability. The strength of those state interests is exactly why the court allowed greater restrictions on the abortion right than on other rights deriving from the 14th Amendment. But what Roe and Casey also recognized, which is today's, which today's majority does not, is that a woman's freedom and equality are likewise involved. The fact, that fact, the presence of countervailing interests, is what made the abortion question hard and what necessitated balancing, the majority scoffs at that idea. Castigating us for repeatedly parsing the balance the two cases arrived at with the word balance in scare quotes. To the majority, balance is a dirty word, and as moderation is for a foreign concept. The majority would allow states to ban abortion from conception onward because it does not think forced childbirth at all implicates a woman's rights to equality and freedom. Today's court, that is, does not think there is anything of constitutional significance attached to a woman's control of her body and the path of her life. Rowan Casey thought that one-sided view misguided. In some sense, that is the difference, in a nutshell, between our precedents and the majority opinion. The constitutional regime we have lived in for the last 50 years recognized competing interests and sought a balance between them. The constitutional regime we enter today erases the woman's interest and recognizes only the state or the federal governments. The majority makes this change based on a single question, 
that the reproductive right recognized in Roe and Casey exist in 1868, the year when the 14th Amendment was ratified. The majority says, and with this much we agree, that the answer to this question is no. In 1868, there was no nationwide right to end a pregnancy, and no thought that the 14th Amendment provided one. Of course, the majority opinion refers as well to some later and earlier history. On one side of 1868, it goes back as far as the 13th, the 13th century. Uh, but that turns out to be wheel spinning. First, it's not clear what relevance such early history should have, even to the majority. Uh, see New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Historical evidence that long predates ratification may not illuminate the scope of the right. Yeah, seems pretty clear. If the early history obviously supported abortion rights, the majority would no doubt say that only the views of the 14th Amendment's ratifiers were germane. See, uh, I bet it's, or it, but it's not, it is better not to go too far back into antiquity, except if olden law survived to become our founder's law. Second, and embarrassingly for the majority, early law, in fact, does provide some support for abortion rights. Common law authorities did not treat abortion as a crime before quickening the point when the fetus moved into the womb. And early American law followed the common law rule. So the criminal law of that early time might be taken as roughly consonant with Roe and Casey's different treatment of early and late abortions. Better than to move forward in time. On the other side of 1868, the majority occasionally notes that many states barred abortion up to the time of Roe. That is convenient for the majority, but it is window dressing. Is the same majority plus one just informed us post-ratification adopt, adoption or acceptance of laws that are inconsistent with original meaning of the contextual constitutional text obviously cannot overcome or alter that text? Again, see New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. Had the pre-Roe liberalization of abortion laws occurred more quickly and more widely in the 20th century, the majority would say, once again, that only the ratifiers' views are germane. The majority's core legal postulate, then, is that we in the 21st century must read the 14th Amendment just as its ratifiers did. And that is, indeed, what the majority emphasizes over and over again. See, um... The opinion, the most important historical fact is how these states regulated abortion when the 14th Amendment was adopted. If the ratifiers did not understand something as central to freedom, then neither can we. Or, said more particularly, if those people did not understand reproductive rights as part of the guarantee of liberty conferred in the 14th Amendment, then those rights do not exist. As an initial matter, we note a mistake in the just preceding sentence. We referred there to the people who ratified the 14th Amendment. What rights did those people have in their heads at the time? But of course, people did not ratify the 14th Amendment. Men did. So it is perhaps not so surprising that the ratifiers were not perfectly attuned to the importance of reproductive rights for women's liberty or for their capacity to to participate as equal members of our nation. Indeed, the ratifiers both in 1868 and when the original con constitution was approved in 1788 
did not understand women as full members of the community embraced by the phrase, we the people. In 1868, the first wave of American feminists were explicitly told, of course, by men, that it was not their time to seek constitutional protections. Women would not even get a vote for another half century. To be sure, most women in 1868 also had foreshortened view of their rights. If most men could not then imagine giving women control over their bodies, most women could not imagine having that kind of autonomy. But that takes away nothing from the core point. Those responsible for the original Constitution include the 14th Amendment, including the 14th Amendment, did not perceive women as equals and did not recognize women's rights. When the majority says that we must read our foundational charter as viewed at the time of ratification, except that we may also check it against the Dark Ages, it consigns women to second-class citizenship. Casey itself understood this point, as will become clear. It recollected with dismay a decision this court issued just five years after the 14th Amendment's ratification, approving a state's decision to deny a law license to a woman and suggesting as well that a woman had no legal status apart from her husband. Um, Citing uh, Bradwell versus State, There was a time, Casey explained, when the Constitution did not protect men and women alike. But times had changed. A woman's place in society had changed, and constitutional law had changed along with it. The relegation of women to inferior status in either the public sphere or the family was no longer consistent with our understanding of the Constitution. Now, the Constitution protects all individuals, male or female, from the abuse of governmental power or unjustified state interference. So how is it that Casey said, our Constitution, read, now grants rights to women, though it did not in 1868? How is it that our Constitution subjects discrimination against them to heightened judicial scrutiny? How is it that our Constitution, through the 14th Amendment's Liberty Clause, guarantees access to contraception, also legally protected in 1868, so that women can decide for themselves whether and when to bear a child. How is it that until today, that same constitutional clause protected a woman's right, in the event contraception failed, to end a pregnancy in its earlier stages? The answer is that this court had rejected the majority's pinched view of how to read our Constitution. The founders, we recently wrote, knew they were writing documents designed to apply to ever-changing circumstances over centuries. CNLRP versus Noel Canning, or in the words of the great Chief Justice John Marshall, our Constitution is intended to endure for ages to come and must adapt itself to a future seen dimly, if at all. It's uh, McCullough versus Maryland. That is indeed why our Constitution is written as it is. The framers, both in 1788 and 1868, understood that the world changes so they did not define rights by reference to the specific practices existing at the time. Instead, the framers defined rights in general terms to permit future evolution in their scope and meaning and over the course of our history. This court has taken up the framers' invitation. It has kept true to the framers' principles by applying them in new ways, responsive to new societal understandings and conditions, 
Nowhere has that approach been more prevalent than in construing the majestic but openly ended words of the 14th Amendment, the guarantees of liberty and equality for all. And nowhere has that approach produced prouder moments for this country and the court. Consider an example. Obergefell used a few years ago. The court there confronted a claim based on Washington versus Glucksburg that the 14th Amendment must be defined in a most circumscribed manner with central reference to specific historical practices. Exactly the view today's majority follows. Obergefell and the court specifically rejected that view. In doing so, the court reflected on what the proposed historically circumscribed approach would have meant for interracial marriage. The 14th Amendment's ratifiers did not think it gave black and white people a right to marry each other. To the contrary, contemporaneous practice deemed that act quite unprotected as, uh, quite unprotected as abortion. Yet the court in Loving v. Virginia read the 14th Amendment to embrace the Lovings' union if Obergefell explained rights were defined by who exercised them in the past, then receiving or received practices could serve as their own continued justification, even when they conflict with liberty and equality, as latter and more broadly understood. As later and more broadly understood. I'm going to take a break in a second here. The Constitution does not freeze for all time the original view of what those rights guarantee or how they apply. That does not mean anything goes. The majority wishes people to think there are but two alternatives. One, accept the original applications of the 14th Amendment and no others. Or two, surrender to judges' own ardent views, ungrounded in law, about the liberty that Americans should enjoy. At least that idea is what the majority sometimes tries to convey. At other times, the majority, or rather most of it, tries to assure the public that it has no designs on rights, for example, to contraception, that arose only in the back half of the 20th century. In other words, that it is happy to pick and choose in accord with individual preferences. Um, that's quoting Justice Kavanaugh, concurring in the judgment, and uh, quoting Justice Thomas, concurring. <laughs> But that is a matter we discuss later. For now, our point is different. It is that applications of liberty and equality can evolve while remaining grounded in constitutional principles. In constitutional history and constitutional precedents, the second Justice Harlan discussed how to strike the right balance when he explained why he would have invalidated a state's ban on contraceptive use. Judges, he said, are not free to roam where unguided speculation might take them. See Poe versus Allman, dissenting opinion. Yet they also must recognize that the constitutional tradition of this country is not captured whole at a single moment. Rather, its meaning gains context from the long sweep of our history and from successive judicial precedents, each looking to the last and each seeking to apply the Constitution's most fundamental commitments to new conditions. That is why Americans go back to Obergefell's example. That is why Americans, to go back to Obergefell's example, have a right to marry across racial lines. And it is why, to go back to Justice Harlan's case, Americans have a right to use contraceptives so they can choose for themselves whether to have children. All that is what Casey understood. Casey explicitly rejected the present majority's method. 
the specific practices of states at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, Casey stated, do not mark the outer limits of, of substantive sphere of liberty, which the 14th Amendment protects. To hold otherwise, as the majority does today, would be inconsistent with our law. Why? Because the court has vindicated the principle over and over that no matter the sentiment, in 1868, there is a realm of personal liberty, which the government may not enter especially relating to bodily integrity and family life. Casey described in detail the court's contraception cases. It noted decisions protecting the right to marry, including someone of another race. Interracial marriage was illegal in most states in the 19th century, but the court was no doubt correct in finding it to be an aspect of liberty protected against state interference. In reviewing decades and decades of constitutional law, Casey would draw but one conclusion. Whatever was true in 1868, it is settled now, as it was then, when the court had heard arguments in Roe v. Wade, that the Constitution places limits on a state's right to interfere with a person's most basic decisions about family and parenthood. And that conclusion still held good until the, the court's intervention here. It was settled at the time of Roe, settled at the time of Casey, settled yesterday, that the Constitution places limits on a state's power to assert control over an individual's body and most personal decision-making. A multitude of decisions supporting that principle led to Roe's recognition and Casey's reaffirmation of the right to choose. And Roe and Casey, in turn, supported additional protections for intimate and familial relations. The majority has embarrassingly little to say about those precedents. It literally rattles them off in a single paragraph, and it implies that they have nothing to do with each other, or with the right to terminate an early pregnancy. Um, See, Nancy, asserting that recognizing a relationship among them as addressing aspects of personal autonomy would ineluctably license fundamental rights to illegal drug use and prostitution. But that is flat wrong. The court's precedents about bodily autonomy, sexual and familial relations, and procreation are all interwoven, all part of the fabric of our constitutional law. And because that is so, of our lives, I'm sorry, and because that is so of our lives, there's a weird comma in there, especially women's lives, where they safeguarded a right to self-determination and eliminating that right, we need to say before further describing our precedents, is not taking a neutral position, as Justice Kavanaugh tries to argue, concurring opinion again, his idea is that neutrality lies in giving the abortion issue to states, where some can go one way and some another. But would he say that the court is being surreptitiously neutral if it allowed New York and California to ban all the guns they want? If the court allowed some states to use unanimous juries and others not? If the court told the states, decide for yourselves whether to put restrictions on church attendance, we could go on, and in fact, we will. Suppose Justice Kavanaugh were to say, in line with the majority opinion, that the rights we just listed are more textually or historically grounded than the right to choose. What then of the right to contraception or same-sex marriage? Would it be scrupulously neutral for the court to eliminate those rights too? The point of all these examples is that when it comes to rights, the court does not act neutrally. When it leaves everything up to the states, 
Rather, the court acts neutrally when it protects the right against all comers. And to apply that point to the case here, when the court decided, uh, when the court decimates a right women have held for 50 years, the court is not being scrupulously neutral. It is instead taking sides. Taking sides against women who wish to exercise the right. And for states like Mississippi, that want to bar them from doing so. Justice Kavanaugh cannot obscure that point by appropriating the rhetoric of even-handedness. His position just is what it is. It broke no compromise refusal to recognize a woman's right to choose from the first day of her pregnancy. And that position, as we will now show, cannot be squared with this court's long-standing view that women indeed have rights. Whatever the state of the world in 1868 to make the most personal and consequential decisions about their bodies and their lives. <clears throat> Consider first, then, the line of this court's cases protecting bodily integrity. Casey, no right in this court's time honored view, or sorry, no right in this court's time honored view is held more sacred or is more carefully guarded than the right of every individual to the possession and control of his own person. That's Union Pacific Railroad versus Botsford. See also Cruzan versus Director of Missouri Department of Health. Uh, and that's every adult has a right to determine what shall be done with his own body. Or to put it more simply, everyone, including women, owns their own bodies. So the court has restricted the power of government to interfere with a person's medical decisions or compel her to undergo medical procedures or treatments. See, for example, Winston versus Lee, uh, forced surgery, Rockland versus California, forced stomach pumping, Washington versus Harper, forced administrative of antipsychotic drugs. Casey recognized the doctoral affinity between those precedents and Roe, and that doctoral affinity is born of a, a factual likeness. There are few greater incursions on a body than forcing a woman to complete a pregnancy and give birth. For every woman, those experiences shall involve all manner of physical changes, medical treatments, including the possibility of cesarean sections, and medical risk. Just as one example, an American woman is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. <clears throat> See Whole, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt. <clears throat> that women happily undergo those burdens and hazards of their own accord does not lessen how far a state impinges on a woman's body when it compels her to bring a pregnancy to term. And for some women, as Roe recognized, abortions are medically necessary to prevent harm. The majority does not say, which is itself ominous, whether a state may prevent a woman from attaining an abortion when she and her doctor have determined it is needed medical treatment. So too, Roe and Casey fit neatly into a long line of decisions protecting from government intrusion of a wealth of private choices about family matters, child-rearing, intimate relationships, and procreation. See Casey and Roe listing the myriad of decisions this kind, of this kind that Casey relied on. Those cases safeguard particular choices about whom to marry, whom to have sex with, what family members to live with, how to raise children, and crucially, whether and when to have children. In varied cases, the court explained that those choices, the most intimate and personal a person can make, 
reflect fundamental aspects of personal identity. They define the very attributes of personhood, and they inevitably shape the uh, nature and future course of a person's life, and often the lives of those closest to her. So the court held those choices belong to the individual and not the government. That is the essence of what liberty requires, and liberty may require it. This court has repeatedly said, even when those living in 1868 would not have recognized the claim because they would not have seen the person making it as a full-fledged member of the community, throughout our history, the sphere of protected liberty has expanded, bringing in individuals formerly excluded In that way, the constitutional values of liberty and equality go hand in hand. They do not inhibit the hermetically sealed containers the majority portrays. Compare Obergefell versus um, Roe and Casey. The court expanded in successive cases those who could claim the right to marry, though their relationships would have been outside the law's protection in the mid-19th century. See Loving. Uh, and Turner versus Safley um, prisoners see also Stanley versus Illinois offering constitutional protection to untraditional family units. <clears throat> and after Roe and Casey, of course, the court continued in that vein. With a critical stop to hold that the 14th Amendment protected same sex intimacy the court resolved that the amendment also conferred on same-sex couples the right to marry. See Lawrence and Obergefell. In considering that question, the court held history and tradition, especially as reflected in the course of our precedent, guide and in, uh, in discipline the inquiry. Guide and discipline the inquiry. But the sentiments of 1868 alone do not and cannot rule the present. Casey similarly recognized the need to extend the constitutional sphere of liberty to a previously excluded group. The court then understood, as the majority does, the majority today does not, that the men who ratified the 14th Amendment and wrote the state laws of the time did not view women as full and equal citizens. A woman then, Casey wrote, had no legal existence separate from her husband. Women were seen only as the center of home and family life, without the full and independent legal status under the Constitution. But that could not be true any longer. The state could not now insist on the historically dominant vision of the woman's role. And equal citizenship, Casey realized, was inescapably connected to reproductive rights. The ability of women to participate equally in the life of the nation, in all its economic, social, political, and legal aspects, has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. Without the ability to decide whether and when to have children, women could not, in the way men took for granted, determine how they would live their lives and how they would contribute to society around them. For much that reason, Casey made clear that precedents Roe most closely tracked were those involving contraception, Over the course of three cases, the court held that a right to use and gain access to contraception was part of the 14th 14th Amendment's guarantee of liberty. See Griswold, Eisenstadt, and Carey v. Population Services International. That clause, we explained, 
necessarily conferred a right to be free from unwarranted governmental intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. Eisenstadt, uh, Carey. Casey saw Roe as of a piece. In, a, in critical respects, the abortion decision is one of the same character. Reasonable people, the court noted, could also oppose contraception, and indeed, they could believe that some forms of contraception similarly implicate a concern with potential life. Yet the views of others could not automatically prevail against a woman's right to control her own body and make her choice about whether to bear and probably to raise a child when an unplanned pregnancy is involved. Because either contraception or abortion is outlawed, the liberty of women is at stake in a sense unique to the human condition. No state could undertake to resolve the moral question raised in such a definitive way as to deprive a woman of all choice. Faced with all these connections between Roe, Casey, and judicial decisions recognizing other constitutional rights, the majority tells everyone not to worry. It can be so, it says, neatly... It can be, so it says, neatly extract the right choice from the constitutional edifice without affecting any associated rights. Think of someone telling you that the Jenga tower simply will not collapse. Yes, they wrote that. Today's decision, the majority first says, does not undermine the decisions cited by Roe and Casey. The ones involving marriage, procreation, contraception, and family relationships in any way Note that this first assurance does not extend to rights recognized after Roe and Casey, and partly based on them, in particular rights to same-sex intimacy and marriage. On its later tries, though, the majority includes those two. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. That right is unique, the majority asserts, because abortion terminates life or potential life. So the majority departs or depicts today's decision as a restricted railroad ticket, good for this day and train only. Uh, quote from Smith versus Allwright, Roberts dissenting. Should the audience for those too much repeated protestations be dully satisfied? We think not. The first problem with today's majority account comes from Justice Thomas's concurrence, which makes clear he is not with the program. In saying nothing in today's opinion cast doubt on non-abortion precedents, Justice Thomas explains he means only that they are not at issue in this very case. This case, uh, here's the quote, this case does not present the opportunity to reject those precedents. But he lets us know what he wants to do when they are. In future cases, he says, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. And when we reconsider them, then we have a duty to overrule these demonstrably erroneous decisions. Uh, ante at three. So at least one justice is planning to use the ticket of today's decision again and again and again. Even placing the concurrence to the side, the assurance in today's opinion still does not work. Or at least that is so if the majority is serious about its sole reason for overturning Roe and Casey. The Legal Status of Abortion in the 19th Century Except in the places quoted above, the state interest in protecting fetal life plays no part in the majority's analysis. 
To the contrary, the majority takes pride in not expressing a view about the status of the fetus. Um, multiple quotes to aligning itself with Roe and Casey's stance of not deciding whether life or potential life is involved. Um, the majority's departure from Roe and Casey rests instead and only on whether a woman's decision to end a pregnancy involves any 14th Amendment liberty interest against which Roe and Casey balance the state interest in preserving fetal life. Um, this page ends at a uh, footnote, so I'm just going to read the footnote. Uh, indulge in a few more words about this point. The majority had a choice of two different ways to overrule Roe and Casey. It could claim that those cases underrated the state's interest in fetal life, or it could claim that they overrated a woman's constitutional liberty interest in choosing an abortion, or both. The majority here rejects the first path, and we can see why. Taking that route would have prevented the majority from claiming that it means only to leave this issue to the democratic process, that it does not have a dog in the fight. And indeed, doing so might have suggested a revolutionary proposition, that the fetus it's, is itself a constitutionally protected person, such that an abortion ban constitutionally is constitutionally mandated. The majority, therefore, chooses the second path, arguing that the 14th Amendment does, according to the majority, no liberty interest is present, because and only because the law offered no protection to the woman's choice in the 19th century. But here's the rub. The law also did not, and then, and would not for ages, protect a wealth of other things. It did not protect the rights recognized in Lawrence and Obergefell to same-sex intimacy and marriage. It did not protect the right recognized in Loving to marry across racial lines. It did not protect the, recognized, the right recognized in Griswold to contraceptive use. For that matter, it did not protect the right recognized in Skinner versus Oklahoma Re X. Rel. Williamson not to be sterilized without consent. So, if the majority is right in its legal analysis, all those decisions were wrong, and all those matters properly belong to the states, to whatever particular state interests are involved. And if that is true, it is impossible to understand, as a matter of logic and principle, how the majority can say that its opinion today does not threaten, does not even undermine any number of other constitutional rights. Nor does it even help just to take the majority at its word. Assume the majority is sincere in saying, for whatever reason, that it will go so far and no further. Scout's honor. Still, the future significance of today's opinion will be decided in the future. And law often has a way of evolving without regard to its original intentions. A way of actually following where logic leads rather than tolerating hard-to-explain lines. Rights can be expanded in that way. Dissenting in Lawrence, Justice Scalia explained why he took no comfort in the court's statement that a decision recognizing the right to same-sex intimacy did not involve same-sex marriage. That could be true, he wrote, only if one entertains the belief that principle and logic have nothing to do with the decisions of this court. Score one for the dissent is a matter of prophecy, and logic and principle are not one-way ratchets. Rights can contract in the same way and for the same reason, because whatever today's majority might say, one thing really does lead to another, and we fervently hope that it does not happen because of today's decision. 
We hope that we will not join Justice Scalia in the Book of Prophets, but we cannot understand how anyone can be confident that today's opinion will be the last of its kind. Consider, as our last word on this issue, contraception. The Constitution, of course, does not mention that word, and there is no historical right to contraception of the kind the majority insists on. To the contrary, the American legal landscape in the decades after the Civil War was littered with bans on the sale of contraceptive devices. So again, there seem to be two choices. If the majority is serious about its historical approach, then Griswold and its progeny are in the line of fire too. Or if it is not serious, then what is the basis of today's decision? If we had to guess, we suspect the prospects of this court approving bans on contraception are low. But once again, the future significance of today's opinion will be decided in the future. At least today's opinion will fuel the fight to get contraception and any other issues with a moral dimension out of the 14th Amendment and into state legislatures. Anyway, today's decision, taken on its own, is catastrophic enough. As a matter of constitutional method, the majority's commitment to replicate in 2022 every view about the meaning of liberty held in 1868 has precious little to recommend it. Our law in this constitutional sphere, as in most, has for decades upon decades proceeded differently. It has considered fundamental constitutional principles, the whole course of the nation's history and traditions, and the step-by-step evolution of the court's precedence. It is disciplined, but not static. It relies on accumulated judgments, not the sentiments of one long-ago generation of men who themselves believed and drafted a constitution to reflect that the world progresses, and by doing so, it includes those excluded from that olden conversation rather than perpetuating its bounds. As a matter of constitutional substance, the majority's opinion has all the flaws its method would suggest. Because laws in 1868 deprived women of any control over their bodies, the majority approves states doing so today. Because those laws prevented women from charting the course of their own lives, the majority says states can do the same again. Because in 1868, the government could tell a pregnant woman, even in the first days of her pregnancy, that she could do nothing but bear a child. It can once more impose that command. Today's decision strips women of agency over what even the majority agrees is a contested and contestable moral issue. It forces her to carry out the state's will, whatever the circumstances and whatever the harm it will wreak on her and her family. In the 14th Amendment's terms, it takes away her liberty, even before we get to stare decisis. We dissent.